God has made us like a living drama on a moving picture in this world. We are a piece of art displaying grace to the world. How we live and how we act and how we treat each other displays his grace so that the world might see the art and worship the artist, not the art, the artist. And Jesus, Jesus is the hero of every story. He is the hero of everyone's history. For without his story, we have no history. Hi, and welcome to Mid-South Viewpoint. I'm Byron Tyler. So glad you could join us today. Randy Oldham is the president and chief executive officer of Memphis Athletic Ministries. Many of you know about this ministry founded back in 1998. Memphis Athletic Ministries, or MAM, exists to coach, grow, and lead the youth of Memphis by helping them discover their identity in Christ and their purpose in the community. Now, Randy first joined MAM back in 2006 as the Neighborhood Center Director. He now oversees all the operations and programming for eight neighborhood youth centers that serve more than, get this, 800 underserved youth after school every day and also the summer camps as well. He and his wife, Calandria, have one son, Enoch. Randy has been on Mid-South Viewpoint multiple times, and uh, he's a good friend of mine. He's a member of High Point Church and sometimes teaches on Sundays and regularly teaches for the Singles Outreach. Now, recently, Randy has been teaching from the book of Ephesians in a series called Cause and Effect. In part three of the series, he shares how we as Christ followers are to be Jesus with skin wherever we go in order to bring joy and peace to those not in relationship with Christ, facing life without hope that only Christ can provide. In this particular message, Randy develops the pagan temple worship of the goddess Artemis, and compares that to us as Christ followers being the true temple of God in order to display God's ultimate glory in all the earth. Let's join Randy now as he unpacks God's word for us. We are looking at Ephesians. We were going to go into chapter 3, but as I started studying this, as I I looked at the end of chapter 2, there are some deep, heavy truths in this passage, in this chapter. And so I said, you know what? Prayed about it and felt like God wanted us to settle in to chapter two and to look at some things, to look at Jesus being our peace. What does that mean? To look at what is the church uh, because he is the cornerstone. We are going to look at a passage of scripture, but I want you to take a journey with me. I want you to not be in Memphis, Tennessee. I want you to think of this as you are in the church of Ephesus. Now, the church of Ephesus was a different setting. They didn't meet in a huge building like this. There was only actually to start about 15 or 20 of them, and they met in a house. And they did not have this. They didn't have a completed Bible. All they had was a letter from this guy who was a rabbi whose name was Paul. Just to review real quickly, let's look at Ephesians 2.14. Ephesians 2.14 reads, For Christ himself has brought peace to us. He united Jews and Gentiles into one people, when in his own body on the cross, he broke down the wall of hostility that separated us. We talked about that last week. Jesus Christ reconciles all men to himself, all women to himself, all ethnos to himself, Thai ethne. He holds all things together, but yet he brings all things together. And so in this passage... Paul makes this statement. In verse 14, he says, He himself is our peace. That Jesus Christ 
He not only brings peace, but he himself is our peace. Now, as I was studying this, I went back and I I found some amazing things out about the culture. The Ephesians heard the words, Jesus is our peace. They would have heard it differently than we would. In that culture, there was a term called Pax Romana. That meant Roman peace. Now, let me explain to you what Roman peace means. Romans regarded peace not as the absence of war, but they believed that when we conquer every living person on the face of the planet and we make them underneath our rule and we build roads back to Rome, then every living person on the planet will have peace because we have conquered them and they will have access to Rome. That was Pax Romana. That is what they believed. So it's, it's, it's worlds apart from our culture when we hear peace. The Ephesians, this is what they would have heard because they were under Roman rule. They would have heard, you mean that Jesus is peace to every living person on the planet? They would have heard, you mean that every living person on the planet has access to Jesus? and thereby peace is accomplished. You see, they were polar opposites. The Romans believed that by war and us conquering you, you will have peace. But Jesus turns the culture upside down and says, I am peace. I like that. We can say amen if something gets good to you today. So peace wasn't pursued by negotiating and avoiding war in their culture. It was pursued and created by creating war. So it's a different mindset when the church, this small group of believers, hears Paul's letter when he says, Jesus is our peace. That would have radically changed the way that they operated and lived their lives. You see, peace is the person of Jesus Christ. Write this down. This is very important. Our peace can be the greatest proof to an unbelieving world of the validity of the gospel. Our peace can be the greatest proof to an unbelieving world that Jesus is real. Everyone here online, you've gone through some situation that took your peace away, that gave you frustration. Maybe you're going through some drama, but also everyone under the sound of my voice, Jesus is your peace. And he not only brings peace, he is peace. And that peace is what the world looks at When they see us, do they see something different? So this is what the Ephesians would have heard. And then they also would have heard when Paul tells them that Jesus is the cornerstone. So let's get some context to this. In biblical times, no building was created that didn't have a cornerstone. None. And the entire focal point of the foundation was the cornerstone. The cornerstone gave structural integrity to the entire building. The walls were held together by the cornerstone. Now, in Ephesus, it's important to know that the temple of Artemis is one of the seven wonders of the world, a massive structure. So when the Ephesians heard the word cornerstone, they thought of this building that was one of the seven wonders of the world, And they would have thought of that building because most of them lived in the shadow of that. So cornerstone had a different meaning for them. The question for us is, is Jesus your cornerstone of your life? Is he the cornerstone of this body? Is he the cornerstone of your family? Is he the cornerstone of everything you do, say, and be? So as they looked at this cornerstone and as they heard Paul say this, 
think about it. There's 15 to 20 people. Now, they didn't meet like this. They met in a house. And so they're hearing this, and I'm sure they're going, I just committed to the gospel. What does it mean for me to be a Christian? Now, they didn't have this. All they had was the letter. I'm sure they were asking, what is the church? What is the church? Let's look at Ephesians chapter 1, 22 and 23. It says, Ephesians 1, 22 and 23, and he put all things under his feet and gave him as a head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So think about these Ephesians, okay? They're in this little house. You got slaves, Greek, Jew, free, old, young, tie-ethne, different ethnicities in this little house. And I'm sure that it was the type of group that if you walked into it, you would say, how did all of these people come to gather together? Because naturally they would not hang out. How did they get here? You know what's crazy is that's the disciples. The disciples would not hang out. They would not be together normally without Jesus. Matter of fact, two or three of the disciples would have killed each other because they were politically opposed. Jesus brought them together and created unity. So this body of believers that anybody would have walked in the room and said, what are you doing here? How did you get together? They would come together and they would pray together. They would sing, praise, and worship together. They would take communion together. They would love each other. And they didn't have a Bible. They just had this letter that this Jewish guy, this rabbi, we're going to read it. And they would read this letter. Now, they didn't have Xerox, so they didn't make photocopies. So they passed this letter among the houses. But they all came together in this small church, small house. Now, you got to know Ephesus was the center of witchcraft for the entire civilized world. Ephesus was immoral. It was rotting witchcraft. It was known for a temple worship. But not only that, it was known for infanticide. Now, infanticide in the Greek culture is if, you're, if a baby was born in the Greek culture and it was not perfect, it had any blemish, up to the first year they would take the baby and they would throw it over the wall. Not abortion. I'm talking about a year old. They would throw it over the wall of Ephesus. And do you know what? In chapter 1 when it talks about adoption, the Ephesian church would go over the wall into the field of dead babies and look for babies who were alive so they could bring them into their house. They would save them. And so people in Ephesus who were not Christ followers looked at them and said, who does this? Who in their right mind would do this? So when the Ephesians heard adoption, they heard a whole different context of scripture. But this is what this small house church was doing. That's a pretty intriguing way to think of church, isn't it? You see, I'm sure these Christians were there, Christ followers, and they were doing like some of us. They were going, I gave my life to Christ. What do I do now? What does it mean to take Jesus outside of these walls to the city, to the world? Well, the scriptures unlock that. In chapter 1, verse 22 and 23, the passage says, we are his body. We are his body. So when they heard that, when these Ephesians heard that, think about it. We understand that God loved the earth so much and loved us that he sent Jesus, his son. We know that God is embodied in man as Jesus Christ. And we know that the kingdom of God is here. And Jesus says, follow me. We know that Jesus died 
for my sins and rose from the grave, ascended into heaven. But I'm sure these Ephesians were going, so if Jesus died and rose again and went back to heaven, does he intend us to be his hands and feet and heart in this world? You see, I hadn't seen Jesus walking around with sandals and a robe in Memphis and saying, follow me. But what I have seen is Christ followers who walk around as Jesus with skin on and they live such a life that Jesus wants us to be his poems. And he wants us to be that embodiment that people go, wow, you have a peace. You have this. What is going on with you? I want to follow whatever it is you have. And our response by our lives is I am a follower of Jesus Christ. You see, I'm sure these Ephesians came to these two truths, and I want you to write this down. Church isn't something that we go to. Church is something that we are. Church isn't something that we go to, but church is something that we are. That throws a major dent in your theology because then you got to stop inviting people to church. How do you invite them to who you are? But don't y'all hear that? Hey, man, invite people to church. Come to church. But I am the church. So church isn't something that we go to. Church is something that we are. But church isn't a place where we go to hear a message. Church is a message that we embody to all the places that we go. And I'm the one speaking the message today, and I'm saying it. (laughs) Church is not a place where we go to hear a message. Church is a message that we embody to all the places that we go. We are Jesus with skin on. Wherever we go, we are the body. We are the church. Wouldn't it be nice to invite somebody to come with you to church, but they've been to your house first and had a meal? And let me just say, you don't know nobody. You don't know them really till they kick their shoes off and have some leftovers at your house. That's when you really know them. But what would that be like? But let's look at Ephesus. Let's look at what they did, okay? So we are his body, Okay, we are his body. We said that. Remember last week we talked about we are his artwork in verse 2.10. Let's go to Ephesians 2.10. Ephesians 2.10, one of my favorite verses in the Bible. For we are his workmanship, his poems, poema. That's the word workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So you know what? I'm going to say this. It doesn't matter how Randy feels about himself. It doesn't matter if I have a bad attitude one week. I get frustrated. It doesn't matter if I think I can't do this. The word says he has predestined good works for me to do for his glory, not for mine. That's why I need to go to God's word and see what God says about me rather than believe what people say about me and what I believe about myself. Good works. We are his artwork. Now, it's important to keep this in context. Ephesus was known worldwide for its artwork, but its artwork were all gods with a little g. People would do sculptures and paintings, mosaics, and other types of images of their gods. The most common thing was to make images of their goddess Artemis out of metal or marble. So when these Ephesians heard workmanship, they understood as an artist would understand. I'm not an artist. I'm not a creative. I can't do anything that these folks can do. But I understand what this says. These people would look at it and they would go, wow, workmanship, art, artist. You see, in Ephesus, people made images of their gods and then they sold them and they were bought to be worshipped. We live in a culture where people make artwork out of their gods. But here is a God who makes artwork out of his people. The Ephesians would have said, wait, we live in a culture where people make art out of their gods. Artemis, Medusa. 
But here is a God who makes artwork out of his people. Amen. The Ephesians would have said, we live in a culture where people make art in their God's images. But here is a God who makes people in his own image. That's why we can climb over this wall, go out into this cemetery full of babies, some dead, some alive, and find the ones who are alive and reach down and redeem them and pull them into our home because they are made in his image. They are works of art. And so are you. Not just artwork, but we are a living drama of God's grace. That's my son. When they said he ain't going to walk, he's not going to breathe, he can't talk. Man, he's a living piece of art displaying God's grace. God has made us like a living drama on a moving picture in this world. We are a piece of art displaying grace to the world. How we live and how we act and how we treat each other displays his grace so that the world might see the art and worship the artist, not the art, the artist. And Jesus, Jesus is the hero of every story. He is the hero of everyone's history. For without his story, we have no history. So These people caught the fact we are his poems. We are his artwork. How we live and display God's grace to Ephesus is what we are about. And then in Ephesians 2, 19 and 20, he says, we are the temple. So then you, Ephesians 2, 19, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. We are his temple. Now, as we said before, Ephesus was an evil city, centerpiece of that region with a massive temple to the goddess Artemis. Now, let me just paint a picture for you. The temple of Artemis was one of the seven wonders of the world. It was a worldwide epicenter for Artemis worship. Over one million people would come and worship at one festival. Artemis was the goddess of fertility and war. So she was worshiped as the blessed protector and the provider of all things in Greek culture. So anything good that would happen, the Greeks would say Artemis. Man, we had a good crop, Artemis. My child is healthy, Artemis. We won this battle, Artemis. Man, we hunted an animal, we killed it, now we can take care of our family, Artemis. The Greeks even called Artemis, now this is crazy, the blessed provider of all things. And in the ancient world, to honor a god or goddess, you built them a temple. So the greater the temple, the greater the God was the logic. The temple at Artemis was massive. Philon, the Greek philosopher, said, he who lays eyes on the temple at once would be convinced that the world of immortal gods has moved from heaven to earth. Another philosopher said, I've seen the great pyramids, I've seen the walls of Babylon, and they pale in comparison to the temple of Artemis. Well, let's look at the temple, because there's a correlation between the temple that the Greeks built, and when scriptures say, we are the temple. The temple of Artemis was 180 by 160 feet high. The main altar was 66 feet tall, 100 feet wide. It had 127 marble columns that were 65 feet high apiece. It had hundreds of marble pillars that were six feet across. Now, in the ancient world, it took forever to build a building. History tells us that one pillar would take a laborer 120 years to build one pillar. So a man would work on it, this pillar, till he died. Then his son would come and work on this pillar till he died. And then his grandson would come and work on this pillar till he died. 
the temple owned 70,000 acres of land surrounding the temple. That's 110 square miles. They owned a plot of land the size of Rhode Island, and they farmed it. They cultivated it. Why did they do this? Number one, the Greeks saw their temple of Artemis as a protector of the accused. If you did a crime and they accused you, you could go to the temple and it was your one place of refuge. Whether you're guilty or not, you could go to the temple and you could have refuge there. So the temple was a protector of the accused. The temple, they have 70,000 acres around, 110 square miles. They farmed it because if you fell on hard times, lost your job, your house burned down, something happened to you, you needed water, food, money, or shelter, you would go to the temple and they would help you. The temple was a safe place where needs could be met. They dealt with the social welfare of the age. Now, when I say social welfare, I'm not talking about like now in our culture. I'm talking about in Roman culture, in history, the society, the welfare of the society. And then it was the cultural influence, a place of cultural influence. If you want to know where the greatest art, the greatest poetry, the greatest theater, the cutting edge of culture, you went to the temple. But it was also the place where their small g, God Artemis, lived. If you wanted to encounter Artemis, you did it at the temple. You had to go there. So when those 15 or 20 people in this house church heard this letter, this is what they would have thought when they said, you're the temple. They would have immediately thought, well, the temple was mean to be the protector of, of the accused, a place of refuge, a safe house. This must mean that we're supposed to be that. That means that anyone who comes into this house has a safe place. It is a spiritual refuge for those who are accused and judged and who can't find peace anywhere else. They would have said, wait, we are the provider to the people in need. You mean we love people? So anyone who has a need, they can come here and we will help them. We look to meet the needs of those in hurting, the helpless, the homeless, those who need food and money and help. That's us. They can come here and find it. Not to the place because I'm the temple. And then they would have said, you know what? We are the cutting edge of cultural influence. We have the best art, the best theater, the best poetry. We have a God who is the creator of the universe. He's saying we should be the ones influencing culture, not letting culture influence us. But why do we live in such a way as Christ followers where we let culture influence us every day? Biblical culture should override all else. But yet we find ourselves letting the culture dictate what we say to our kids, how we lead our kids, what we do in our lives, what we do on our jobs, who we hang out with, who we're friends with, who we like, who we don't like, and what we do with God's money. I find myself in that constant battle, culture or Christ. You see, they would have seen it. They would have, and you know what? They would have said, the temple down the street, the temple of Artemis, man, it's not real. It's fake. It's a bunch of rocks because Jesus Christ lives in me and I'm the temple. They would have said, I need to be a place where people can find Jesus, where God lives, his holy temple. You see, look around this room. Look around. We're a bunch of stones, multicolored, different shapes, sizes, all different stones, put together, and Jesus is the cornerstone. We are his temple. Now, in verse, chapter 2, verse 21, this is very interesting to me. The, the, the verse says the church is growing into a holy temple, not the church was, not the church will be. It's a present active participle. It means is right now and will continue. The church is growing into a holy temple unto the Lord. It's in present and ongoing action. 
Well, what is the church? It's the place where the living God of the universe is present. And it blows my mind that the Greeks said this temple is the place where you can find God, small g, Artemis. But the gospel says every person who comes to Christ is a temple and I dwell in them. So I will not have one place where you can find God. I will have billions because we are the temple. Are y'all tracking with me? Now, final thing. We already said that Ephesus was a massively wicked city and this tiny house church and they're reading this letter. But do you know that this letter was written about 50 or 60 A.D.? And in about 100 A.D., that's 50 years later, after the letter was read, historians tell us that Ephesus, the city of Ephesus, their population was 90% Christ followers. 90%. What happened? What happened? The gospel of Jesus Christ. These people lived it. This little ragtag bunch of believers heard the truth, lived the truth. They were the body, they were the artwork, and they were the temple. And that is what God is calling us to be. And 50 years later, their city was radically transformed. You see, when you look back in history, historians, all they say is something happened at Ephesus. We know that it was the gospel. So for us today, how does this truth of God's word, how do I adjust my life to it? How do you adjust your life to it? You be Jesus with skin on wherever you go. You are a Christ follower. You are the one that brings joy, peace, patience, life to that space. It's not invite them to church to meet Jesus. It's invite them into your life to meet Jesus. And then they come with you to this place where we all gather. That's the gospel. To see people transformed by God's love because they saw it in you and they saw it in me. Our city, our world is dependent on this. Now, Last week, Memphis hit the news for some drama going on in Fraser. I don't care what your political views are. This is not a political statement. But I do know that that little boy, when he was five years old, didn't say, I want to go out like this when I'm 20. I know that when his mama gave birth to him, she didn't say, I want my son to be this when he grows up. Man, we live in a hurting place. If you look around America, man, it's a lot like Ephesus. But we are the church. We are his body. And when I look out on this body of believers... I see men and women who are made in God's image, who are the church, and who are his artwork. And I see an army who, just like the Ephesians, could look up in 50 years and say 90% of Memphis are Christ followers. 